Episode two, illusion, spectacle, and sometimes myth, a conversation with Jake Willis. Jake is such a compelling person that if you don't know him, I'd strongly encourage you to go check him out before you listen to this podcast. He's on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey, maybe even kick him some bucks on Venmo. So go on, go. Now that you're back, let me get into the interview. This is the second published podcast, but the first one I recorded and it showed. But throughout my shortcomings, Jake fills this time and space with some genuine insights into his life. Normally, we admire musicians from the crowd, but this was better than any concert I'd ever seen. So please, enjoy this conversation with Jake Willis. All right, it looks like we did it. We are live. Hello, Jake Willis. How are you? Doing just fine, my friend. How are you feeling? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. What's new in your world today? Well, not a lot new around here for me. Uh, a few new uh, steel guitar licks. I've been messing around with this thing a lot lately. Um, yeah. But yeah, not a lot happens around here. Music industry isn't moving real quickly at this point. Right. Well, and we've seen you a few times with the field notes down on Folk and Tuesdays. Yeah, and- I jumped times yeah i'll be down again uh february 9th we're gonna play chicago farmers whole last album straight through excellent excellent yeah yeah it's been interesting to watch the ways music has unfolded through the pandemic um yeah Yeah, unfolded one way to say it yeah it's (laughs) definitely come unfolded (laughs) yeah well um you know just to kind of give you some background into why i chose you um like i had said in the message when i when I invited you on, um, we briefly met in passing like a long time ago, um, back in my ISU days. And I think that um, a lot of time has passed since then, but you made a pretty significant mark on my life just playing in the garage off of Kingsley. And I saw you around campus a few times and um, I was an art major who didn't really know which way was up. And um, it was, it was oddly reassuring to see someone who was who was way out there, and and I always respected <laughs> that about. Uh, way out there. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm sorry. I don't. I don't mean that. Um, but you know, it's 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 a it's a rare personality trait that people are willing to, you know, do their own thing. Yeah. Without being impeded on anymore, and so I I have a tremendous respect for that. So. Right. So yeah, so like I said, saw you again at the castle, um, and was extremely excited um to see that you were back in town and then yeah um here we are today so so yeah, yeah so yeah, I, I love the castle theater that place is awesome. so before before chicago farmer how long have you been playing at the castle theater oh first castle theater show i mean that's a that's a long time ago man that's probably not too long after they reopened long time ago it's been I mean, more than 10 years i don't know yeah. Okay. I mean, I remember definitely playing there with Bernie Worrell from Parliament Funkadelic um, and the Talking Heads. Man, that's that's got to be eight years ago or something. But before that, I mean, that wasn't the first show there. I can't even remember. It's been, I mean, I, I was doing about between 200 and 300 shows a year. So, you know, wow. Ed Anderson has a song called A Thousand Gigs Ago. You know, it's hard to remember something that was a thousand gigs ago. <laughs> that's awesome how does how does one end up to be jake willis where jake willis is today 
um, you know, what would you like to share with the world about your background and what led you to music? Um, I don't know. I kind of fell into music. My mom was deaf. Uh, my dad wasn't really around that much. Um, I don't know. Uh, I got a radio when I was 12 and I remember like just, you know, I hadn't really been exposed to music at all before that. And I was just kind of flipping around the dial and like the gospel stations for all the wild voices. Yeah. And then um, kind of from there, at some point, uh, Guns N' Roses came out and a friend of mine had the cassette and lent it to me right when they came out before they actually hit with the singles and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, it was revelatory. And I was like, I decided like immediately, like, I'm going to do that for a living. That's it. I'm that's, that's what I'm going to do. Like if the, if those clowns can do it, like, why can't I, like, I'll, I'll just do that. And I figured I was young enough that if I just picked something while nobody else around me had picked anything yet that they wanted to do, if I just decided on something and, and focused on it enough that I figured that I would have a head start and be able to do it. Like I was, you know, young and naive and I didn't have any guidance. So I didn't, you know, realize that most people in something like this, you know, had their parents to get them started when they were three or something. But mm -hmm. I just, you know, I had no guidance at all. So I just picked it up and started practicing 16 hours a day, like obsessively waking up at four o'clock in the morning and blowing scales before school and uh, tapping away on the desk until I could get home and get back to it again. And, uh, and then when I was 16, I moved to Hollywood and went to Guitar Institute and moved in with a bunch of crazy drug dealers on Sunset Boulevard. And, um, and uh, you know, went in and studied classical guitar at California State and at Illinois State. Um, and then Berklee College of Music in Boston. I hopped around doing that stuff and ended up touring the country by myself, doing my little solo show for years. And I wound up in Chicago because it was easier for me to book around here than in Chicago than anywhere else. Yeah. That's, so, the, that's the nutshell of the nut. That, yeah, that's a lot. That's a big nut. <laughs> <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> Guys, that jump for that, huh? No. Uh, so, <laughs> So, okay. So where's, where's home? What's a hometown? Um, I'm in Chicago. Okay. Okay. Yeah, been, so that, were you born and raised in the Midwest then? I was born in Jersey, but um, my folks split up and got back together. And when they did, my dad had a job offer in Illinois. So he dragged us up to Chicago Burbs and then, you know, was here through high school. And then, you know, like I was saying, after that, wandered all over the place, went to Hollywood. California, Boston, Illinois State, and just wandered around a lot. Yeah, yeah. But I've been based here through, you know, through, you know, the high school formative years. So when I'd come back around here, I just had more friends and people and contacts and everything. And when I'd been touring at the end of, sort of the end of the road for the, I was on, on tour for years, just nonstop circling by myself in a little Ford boat, um, just picking up gigs as I could along the way. And, um, I got offered a record deal in Chicago right at the same time as some high school friends of mine who were like the best musicians that I knew at the time. Um, they had a band that had just lost their singer guitar player in Chicago. So everything was just kind of pulling back towards Chicago. And when I came here, it was just really easy, you know, relatively speaking to, to book here versus, you know, Toledo or something. Oh, absolutely. Anywhere else. It was just simpler. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Wow. So, so yeah, so can you talk a little bit about, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty severe music education that you went through. Um, how, how, has, how has going to school for music 
helped change your direction in learning music. So, I mean, I, I will, I'll say this, I was an art major. And so I feel I learned a lot of formal and conceptual ideas that helped drive my practice. And it was definitely through the variety of schools I was at and mm -hmm. seeing different types of people who attend these places that it really helped kind of, I guess, set me on a specific course, a, a trajectory, if you would say. I mean, for me, I set the trajectory myself when I was a kid and I made a decision, you know, as like an 11 or 12 year old, what I was going to do for a living. And that was it. So the trajectory was already there. I knew what I was going to do. Um, and I was putting in the hours and the work on it, going to school for it um, and going to various schools for it just gave me tools and more things to practice and work on, bounce off of, you know, people to bounce ideas off of and, and sort of drain for their ideas as right. I wanted them. I didn't really have an intention of graduating because I didn't see any purpose of a degree in music so much, but I had the opportunity to school. So I would just go to one program and take the entire music program and then go to the next school and do the same thing. Like just finish out their theory program in a year at one place, go to the next one, finish their theory program out in a year and the year training and everything else and you know, do all the classical guitar I wanted and move on to the next one. And um, when I was at Illinois State, uh, the professor there, Angela Favis had just started still there now, but it was his first year there. And he had, you know, a syllabus for all the students to get them onto this graduation track that I had just no interest in at all. And it was like, butt heads of the guy. I was like, I'm just trying to drain techniques out of you, man. I'm not trying to graduate. And he just didn't understand at all, you know? Yeah. So, yeah wow. So, so you were like, hacking the education system before that was even a thing. That's, that's impressive. Yeah. I, I think if I had YouTube and, and back then, I probably would have done that instead. You know, that is that is something that comes up as again, as, as a person who studied art, um, that comes up in our house a lot when we when I've got kids. And when we talk about college and what college might mean in 10 years, I always think, well, maybe travel, maybe some, you know, maybe there's something else. Yeah, so. things are going to change a lot with education, I think. I mean, it's vitally important. You can't have a republic without an educated population or it collapses. Mm -hmm. There's, I mean, the whole idea, like when they expanded voting to like directly voting for the Senate, part of the reason for that was that they were the, the reasoning was that the population should be educated enough to make a vote themselves. Like where before you would vote for the House of Representatives to do it for you because you figured that those people would, you know, have an education. But they're talking about that they're in the House of Representatives, they'd make sound decisions. Now you can question that at this point, but uh, I'm just teasing. You can't have a republic without a po educated population. So they you just have to figure out a way to do that, and also, you know, make sense out of it being insanely expensive to get something like a music degree that you're not going to make any money with. But you know, there's still value in that somehow. But you know, how do you calculate that? Yeah, yeah. No, I think the liberal arts have uh, have taken a very strange role in mm -hmm. in the 21st century. Um, I mean, I see all the value in the world in, in studying fine arts or any sort of liberal arts, but. Um... Well, I mean, I, well, my favorite professor that I ever had is this cat, Jim Boydis, who was the jazz teacher at Illinois State University. And he was such a nut and he's such a, a just a screwball and amazing character, incredible musician. And uh, he was teaching the kids things that they weren't ready to even hear, you know, he was, he's a really amazing guy. Um, because he just didn't give a crap. He, it was more about like, you know, like if you're not cut out for this, he's gonna show you. He's gonna tell you that you're not cut out for it now before you waste any more years of your life on it. Like he'll break you. 
because better to be broken now than to get broken when you don't have time to regroup and do something else with your life. And he was awesome. Like it, so if we can switch topics, uh, one of the other questions I had on here was about travel and the role of travel in your yeah. life. Would you like to um, talk a little bit about how that forms your life? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, a lot of the stuff it's like, is it, you know, like sometimes it is, yeah. I, for years, I was touring nonstop, just like, you know, place to place to place to place in a circle. I didn't have a home base. I lived out of a car and just find the next gig, find the next gig. And, uh, and that was fine. I did that for a long time. Um, and then I found that it was more efficient for me to pick a spot, Chicago, for myself and uh, work in a region and do spokes instead of long tours. I found long touring to be and that, that kind of traveling to be uh, inefficient. And a lot of people that were doing it I mean, I think I was to a degree too, we're chasing an illusion of the 20th century, which has been a big problem for, I think musicians in general is chasing illusions rather than dealing with the reality of what the current industry is at any given moment. And right now it's in flux and we're all trying to figure out what it is and what it's not, what it's gonna be in six months or a year. Um, but, you know, so I can only speak to like the last chapter where you know, like I saw my friends, people used, people used to tour like for the, for the music industry, they were touring for the record industry. Um, before records were a thing, people didn't tour nationally. You'd have uh, people sounded like they were playing Mississippi blues because they were in Mississippi. They played this one style of music. That's what they heard locally. That's what they played. That's what people around there grew to expect. And they sounded like that area and you didn't catch them driving to California to play that same music out there. You wouldn't have ever heard it. You go, you know, 200 miles the other direction hear Piedmont blues, and they're gonna do it in this certain way that they do it there. And you're not gonna hear that sound someplace else. They were pretty regionalized other than sometimes making a run up the Mississippi to Chicago or Memphis or something like that, regional sounds. You didn't hear bluegrass music if you didn't live in Appalachia. It, it, where now it's all over the place because the record industry and um, promotions and stuff like that and spreading things nationally. It all started with the record labels being able to sell that material. But if you're gonna sell a record in California, you need to get that person out there playing shows to get people to think, oh, I need to go to the record store and buy this thing. So all that national touring stuff was really just people trying to sell records in the early 20th century. And once selling records stopped being a thing, like in the MP3 era, like in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, like record sales broke down that people kept feeling like they had to do that thing because you're not making it if you're not doing that thing that you think you're supposed to be doing. Like, oh, like you too is touring all over. So I need to do that or I'm not as big, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's not, that's not realistic. They, you're, the, the, the business has to lead the model. The, the model can't be leading an illusion, you know? And so I saw a lot of people bleeding themselves out that way. And then, you know, trying to make records to sell when records aren't for sale anymore, they're free. So then you spend $50,000 or $20,000 or even $10,000 making a record and they're free now. So my friends were just going, putting themselves out of business one after another. It was the number one reason that bands broke up and people went out of, stopped playing music altogether and went and did something else with their life to pay off the debt for making records. 
figured out that's just not a model. It's not a successful model. And, you know, what you could still do up until, you know, about 11 months ago is play shows live inside of an immediate region and travel between that region in a short enough space where you're not going to be burning money in, on sitting around on a Tuesday and Wednesday and in the middle of Oklahoma or something like that way next weekend where you can actually get paid and you're blowing money out the door for hotels or food or whatever you're doing. It just made more sense to be in a spot and play little spokes like, okay, South Bend's right here, back to Chicago, up over here to, you know, Kenosha down here, you know, back, you know, and just not, not waste money on illusions, you know? So the, the traveling thing changed. It, it stopped. Every once in a while I'd get paid to go play a show in Washington state or something. And then I'd, you know, if they would pay me enough to do that, then I'll fly out there or drive out there and, and set up some other shows since the, the cost of getting there is taken care of, but just burning road in Cincinnati, like it doesn't change anything. Like I played New York city a bunch of times, like, but if you're not back there next week to play again, then you're not building anything and you're not really creating any purpose. It just, it stopped making sense. I have friends that um, still work in this 20th century model and, uh, and you know, that's cool. It, it, but now the COVID's happened, the live music thing that I was basing my model on is either paused or dead. And I don't know which one it is yet. Uh, so, you know, I'm gonna have to make adjustments. I see other live music friends of mine making adjustments with the internet. Um, my particular thing that I was doing, I didn't, I need more equipment and situations in a better studio before it would really make sense to do the live streaming thing the way some friends were and i didn't see that as particularly profitable either it's just trying to like figure out what this next thing is going to be and there's so much instability right now but you know i'm just not i played bonnaroo you know i do all these big gigs and stuff like that and i came back home the next day and played at a sandwich shop it doesn't make any difference like i the illusion is not interesting to me it's more about just trying to stay alive and play music and keep playing music in public I, you know be able to sustain myself so i can keep doing it basically i don't know this I don't, that's really roundabout and it was long-winded but i don't know if because the question itself like seems to like lead towards this illusion of like this idea of like touring the world and all this stuff like that and you know, i've done that but it's not that's not really where it's at to me as you've moved ahead in your life and you've settled into understanding this sort of spoke model, hub and spoke model that you just described, has has it freed you up for you to travel differently? Because I, I I've seen on you know on your your social media page that you've you've kind of done some more like uh, worldly travel, right? So so how does that? Yeah, well, I was finding that like because I don't have a lot of other elements in my life, and that's fine. It's what I set out, you know, it's what I set myself into, and it's you know. It, it's all equal. We all go in the same box at the end. What I decided to do was music and this is what I was doing. So my like single-minded focus on that um, to the point where, you know, I'm doing 300 gigs a year doesn't leave a lot of time for a whole lot of other things. Um, so I was finding that like, I just couldn't, I had a hard time saying no to anything. Like, cause I just like, I'd come up, you know, really hungry. So I just never wanted to say no to anything. And then I found that like, you know, Bjork is playing in Chicago and I'm booked at a, you know, some random bar in some, I don't know. And I can't do, I can't go do any of that stuff. Or my friends are going to go do something fun and I can't do it. Or my buddy's going to go uh, on a rafting trip or something like that. And he invites me six months in advance, but I can't do it because I got booked at a bar and I was, I didn't have any kind of work balance basically. 
And so I decided last year to try to create a little bit more work balance and I wanted to work a little bit less because um, I was getting paid more. And my one man band show that I've been doing, um, I've been doing this solo thing with a flying V, just acoustic flying V guitar, singing and beatboxing, lots of effects and crazy sounds and kind of loud and wild thing. And some stuff had happened in my life and I wanted to make like a big, I needed to make a change for myself basically. Like just, I wanted to shake it up. Things were too easy. So I wanted to shake it up and I got a foot operated drum set with like 11 pedals on it that I could play with my feet to do a whole drum set, one man band show. And that upped my value booking. So I was able to make a lot, you know, make a better, not, I mean, I'm not making a whole bunch of money, but enough where like the, my standard of living is so low that I could get ahead of that much easier with this gig. So I didn't need to be working as much as I was. And I started to notice that, that I was saving, but I was like, there was no reason for it. So I, I, I took, I purposefully went out, when a weekend was not getting booked, if it was six weeks out and that weekend hasn't gotten booked yet, forget it. I'm just gonna hold that weekend and I'm gonna go, gonna go to Oregon and see some friends of mine. We're gonna go, you know, I'm gonna go jump in Crater Lake or something, you know like do something with it. I was trying to make a point to just do those things because I was just feeling the years going by like really fast, just like they work, 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 work. And I can't keep one straight from the other because there's no context and there's nobody else involved. So I was trying to make a point to like take more breaks. And then um, this year, like I'd really set out to take more breaks and I sure did. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, my friend is Chicago farmer. He's like a really good friend, folk singing fellow. And he somehow has made that 20th century model that I was talking about work for him. It, it still seemed to be working. And mm -hmm. he was doing well enough with that. Like while my career was like doing much better, his was doing much better too. And uh, he was able, his, his, I think his management, his agency wanted him to have a band also. And I think he did too. So we'd known each other for so long like that he called me up and was like, we're gonna try, let's do this thing and kind of put heads together. You know, you don't have to do the business part. You don't have to do any of this other stuff. Like just come and play guitar easy so simple so easy so my life just got so much easier and it like all the time i had to spend in the office booking it's all free now like you know 90 percent of my work is off so it was like so this year i was like all right well now i'm gonna go do some stuff so tour started in february so my rent was already paid for january for my last gig so I just jumped on a plane and went to africa and like went hiking around in rwanda for a while and you know had this whole adventure and came back from that and jumped on the tour bus with them and was like setting up I was hoping to go to New Zealand or something next, you know, it's like, I'm going to, I want to live. Like if I go broke right now, like fine, like whatever, like if I sell off some guitars, like whatever, I just need to live a little bit. And then, you know, the whole world blew up and uh, you know, whatever I was going to spend from all the saving I'd been doing for the last few years, like whatever I was going to spend on that is now spent on me sitting in my room, practicing steel guitar by myself, watching Netflix. Like here we are, can't predict this stuff. I'm in a, you know, I was in a better position than most people because I'd been working so much before that I could, you know, better position to chill for a second. And, and a lot of other people I know were like sort of felt pushed into taking gigs that were irresponsible or dangerous that I didn't feel like I had to necessarily do or I could maybe hold off a little bit more. Um, that whole thing pretty old. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah. was a very strange time, right? Like January, February, where there was some music still going on and nobody really felt positive yeah. about whether or not it was safe. Yeah, well, January, February, we folks weren't aware that it was in the United States yet. Mm -hmm. um, 
when I was in Rwanda, we were aware that it was happening in in China in in January, and there it was a openly spoken question of like, how is it that I can get onto an airplane and fly back to the United States right now without any testing or quarantine or anything when we don't know where this thing is really? Absolutely. And it's like, that's weird. And my, I had friends who were flying through other countries and they wouldn't let them in, you know, but you could just fly to the United States and jump off the plane. And it was like, it's still like that. They never enacted any rules. If you're an American citizen, it doesn't matter if you've been licking doorknobs in Wuhan, if you want to fly home, you know, have at it. They just never really enacted any rules about it and uh you know predictable result um but yeah it wasn't until um march uh 21st i think or so when venue started to actually shut down everything like really came to a freeze mm-hmm. um, we were in t- on tour in colorado at the time and it was like the last weekend of shows when we really started to realize something was wrong and i had talked to some people who were pretty plugged in who were sending some pretty dire messages ahead and so uh it wasn't a total surprise but this the scope of it this how bad it got like i just didn't think we the united states would screw up that bad you know people that own venues i mean they're that is rough yeah uh i mean those guys are, it's just, that scene is just in su- such big trouble. The promoters and all, and at the end of this, I mean, you can't sit on a venue that didn't really make that much money in the first place for an entire year, not really much of anything or 25% capacity to just like get by while you just keep this thing cycling. You know, they're going to get bought out by corporations and there venues anymore. The promoters who were like really good at their jobs are going to be doing something else by the time this is over and aren't going to come back to like making the crap money they were making in music once mm-hmm. they've like gotten a steadier you know more rational career than the music industry we're in big trouble the culture is going to change people aren't going to be used to going out anymore mm-hmm. so i you know things are going to change a lot and you know we're trying to get an idea of what that's going to be next you know yeah it's hard to read i was really like you know following trying to figure out you know oh should i do this and trying to pivot and at a certain point it's needed to like step back i can't affect it i can't know it's too unstable to even predict so just step back and wait and just try not to do anything too irresponsible in the meantime with it where i'm going to hurt somebody but at what point in the how long will it be before people are vaccinated enough that we can do that again i don't know like how do i book a show in June or July right now, because this is when those would be booking. Do I take that gig now? Do I just cancel on it when it gets too close? If it's not safe still, is that responsible? Is that is that a responsible of me to do? Or is it irresponsible for me to even be participating in that? I don't know. It's these all these gray moral issues. And this is what the music industry is, is kind of like breaking down into. Yeah. And um, well, and I think you hit it. I don't it. know. And it, it's like we were going to be irresponsible. I don't know. And I just don't, I don't know where I, let, uh, I am at adding all that yeah i would say though that you um i mean the way that you've described kind of the illusion of music i think that a lot of americans struggle with that same illusion of success um and i think across a a multitude of industries people have been left living far beyond their means whatever that means right that could mean a lot of different things to people um and yeah this has been a very interesting period so I don't want to I don't want to drill down too far into this, but I do have to ask. So save our stages. 
Um, I mean, I think as music lovers, we're all trying to give what we can. Um, is there anything more that we should be doing? Get vaccinated as fast as you can. Uh, don't go out and throw parties in the meantime. Don't be going to, I mean, it sucks. Get takeout. Don't go to the restaurant. Tip them at the restaurant instead of like tipping them tables because the way this is going to get done is, is it's going to, it's going to be multi-pronged. Um, like I have a cousin in Taiwan. We are in tight contact through the early part of when at least Illinois was supposed to be in some kind of a lockdown, which wasn't even really a full lockdown because people are still going doing stuff. We never did it. But when I was talking to her, they actually did a real quarantine. Like it wasn't like, you know, nobody's throwing spring break parties in Florida or something like that. Like they went, when they did it there, everything was shut. It was national. And you, you didn't go outside. They, they gave you passes. If you wanted to leave your house, if you didn't have a pass on, you dated properly, you're going to get arrested. And so you have a pass a certain number of times per week to go get, or per month rather, to, to get supplies. And that's it. And other than that, you're in your space. And so using that plus masks, plus contact tracing, plus like regular national testing, you get tested regularly. And so they know who is sick and they'd find it immediately before you could pass it around asymptomatically because they tested everybody. So they know who's asymptomatic before they, they find out by having, you know, by the time you're actually sick, you've already been passing it around to other people for a week. Mm-hmm. And so they, they got a handle on all that through quarantines and testing and, and and by April, she reopened her store and they were back to work and everything has been back, not necessarily completely to normal, but operational. And because they actually took it seriously and, and locked down here, we were so frustrated because we keep doing these half measures mm-hmm. and it is just enough to screw us all up and not enough to actually fix the problem. Yeah. And, you know, the more that we really just hunker down and try to fix the actual problem, which is like, distancing not getting sick wearing a mask like quarantining not going out and being social even though we really want to like don't hire me for a show please like we shouldn't be out at shows like if none of us did if all of us could be responsible we'd all be back to work you know in a few months if we'd all been totally responsible and really blocked down if if they had been like a national screw down in march or april we'd all be back to work now you'd be going to a concert right now but we can't because we keep doing it halfway. So, I mean, I guess it's just like, try to get it. If, we, if we're only to be halfway, I mean, at least try to make it 60% by wearing the mask all the time. Maybe it goes 70% by staying home more, 80% by getting a vaccine. You know, we're like step by step, you know, and trying to make up for the people who are being irresponsible by having more of us be responsible until it, the numbers work out. I don't know, man. It's kind of a disease. That, I mean, it's a functional central issue in in like the republic in the united states the problem that we have with our our society like the vietnam war like there's a problem presented to us uh asia is going to become communist because this is happening like we can solve this if you see this as a problem and maybe it is Mm -hmm. you could solve this say with one million troops go over there and you do it, you know, you take it over, you do it. But then it's like, well, we want to balance that with, you know, we don't want to really fully commit to this thing. So we'll send just, how about we send 20,000 
they all die. We don't solve the problem really, but we feel like we did something kind of, and then we throw helicopters into the ocean, run back to the United States in failure and spend all this money and go into debt. Like that's kind of how we do things. It's like, well then just don't do it at all. Like one or the other, like pick one, but we've done this. We do this halfway stuff where we don't accomplish it. And we, and we get all the worst effects of both sides. Like the economy's collapsed now and we didn't accomplish anything. Like it is frustrating. Yeah. And it's, uh, it only seems, as you said, right. It only seems we do enough to, to further exacerbate the problem a little bit more sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. And we were, because we it got politicized where like solving it became a political statement. It's like, no, solving it is like all in all of our best interests. So like, and sure, maybe 20% of people aren't going to cooperate and they never will. Okay, fine. But if 80% of us do, then like that should be enough to like make the thing die out on its own. But you know, if it's 50, 50, like we're not going to make it. If it's 60, 40, we're not going to make it. And um, you know, and then what, I don't know, you know, it's millions of people are going to die and the economy is going to be disrupted for a lot longer of a time because we can't just, we can't take the two months to get it fixed. We want to stretch it out for years and just keep dragging it out and taking the bandaid off as slowly as possible. It's like, things got to come off. You know, we got to, we got to like, we just have to screw down and, and like actually lock down and take the vaccine and do all these things, you know, that are not fun. We're just too, we're just, it's it's individualistic country. Um, in some ways, like I'm thinking about it, like the Native Americans, mm -hmm. um, when they were here, their society was based on this very individualistic, no organization. Everybody's for themselves, running around sort of thing. They didn't organize very much. They were very loose society that way. And a lot of our culture is built off of that idea of this American freedom and individuality. And but for them, like for the natives, like folks showed up from the East who had a very tightly organized society relative to theirs and they brought disease with them. And the people could, the Native Americans couldn't deal with the diseases. 97% of the American Indian population was annihilated by diseases before they actually even ran into uh, settlers. And they just couldn't organize enough. And this, you know, this massive, this giant population organized mass, like a huge number of people from the East that like, came in and and the individual society collapsed. And now we're here with this very individualistic society and like it's coming in from the East, the disease is coming through here. They can organize and take care of their problems. And we just don't seem to be able to organize and keep our crap together. And they're rising and we're coming apart. And, and you know, we're in a decline. That's, it's, it's a weird parallel, I think. Or maybe I've just been in here reading too much. Well, that's, that's a great segue. <laughs> well, and it, it, it like, I want to touch on something before I hit you with the next question, but it's on the topic of reading, right? So um, you yeah. mentioned Native American societies, kind of this traveling of, of new, new people from the East, bringing disease. And it seems like Native Americans, uh, I'm thinking of the book 1491, a friend let me borrow it. And, and really the premise of that book was that Native Americans, while their, their societies were smaller in scale, they were organized and, and, you know, they were, there was more structure than, than we may have been, you know, originally led to believe. But the one point that I think sure. is, is on the nose right well, there. Is, yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the inability to stem, to stop disease, right. The inability to, to organize at scale and stop disease. That's a very interesting takeaway, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the um, yeah, I'm not in any way suggesting that Native Americans did not have uh, organized cultures and politics and and all these other things. They did, um, but they were not as tight as tightly organized as the Europeans were, who were building technology and were like building cities on a mass scale um, beyond even what was had been going on historically in in some of the larger scale cultures like the Incas, or you know, the Comanches. I read a book on the Comanches during the you know a few months ago. Yeah. Well, you know, they had an empire that was the, the whole inner part of the United States that stopped the Spanish and, uh, you know, stopped the the, uh, the U.S. for a while. But their society was still like, it's not that they weren't organized at all. It's that the, the types of organizations were still very individualistic. Like the United States now, it's not that we're not organized at all. We are. We're just not as tightly organized as New Zealand, who can like say like, guys, sorry, this is a drag, but you got to close your store for three months. We're gonna pay your rent. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna take it. You're gonna take this COVID test every, you know, every three days. It's drag, but you're gonna do this thing, and then we can open back up again. They, they handle it. But by not being organized, like we just, we can't handle like big problems. And whenever we handled our big problems in the past, like the United States, like it took big organization, like World War II, like it took everybody pulling together to solve it. The Great Depression, everybody had to pull together, like. Uh, preserving the union and abolishing slavery, like this, the Civil War, like it took all people pulling together and like organizing in, in a big unit to, to overcome like huge problems. You can't solve stuff without like people sticking together and we're fractured. It's, it's a structural, like the Native Americans had a structural problem facing the Europeans. Like the society uh, didn't evolve fast enough to deal with that. They tried. Um, there was attempts to like make large scale like like the Comanches tried and there was uh, um, during the war of 1812 they tried to make a, a Native American federation um, with the Brits who then you know threw them under the bus when they weren't useful anymore um, I don't know I, I'm sure everybody's turned off this podcast by now <laughs> Those that don't even join in no I let's let's move on to uh, reading right what do you tell tell me about your how you see the value of reading. And I, I know I had phrased the question around learning from others, but at a time when there's there's so much, right? Um, I know folks who are, who are kind of like hearkening back to the classics and trying to, right? I, I, and I think a lot of political theory is focusing right now on, on post-World War II FDR type efforts. Um, so, so how are you wading through all of the ideas right now and, and kind of picking out the good ones? The, the phone right now is being propped up between a book that's uh, Edward with John Edward Smith's biography of FDR and uh, <laughs> C. Van Woodward's Origins of the New South 1877 to 1913. That's like that's the those are the books that are like suspending the, the, the phone right now. So you're right down the middle. Um, <laughs> it's a lot harder to get published in a book form than it is on the internet. So you reading has in some ways this sort of a throwback. Um, you, I mean, you can find trash books on Amazon, of course, too. You can find it, anything on any topic and, and whatever. It's, you can get easily published on Amazon, but it's pretty easy to spot that. Um, you know, Random House isn't gonna print that. You know, you know the Harvard Library is not gonna print that. So it's, it's easier to find more reliable sources that way. And they're gonna be, they're gonna have their own slants and leans too. And so you gotta read lots of different sources. My mom was a librarian, um, so I grew up in library stacks. Um, 
and that's just always been a part of the thing. You know, reading was always a big deal. Um, and, you know, in my family in general, going back, that's, you know, self-education was important. Um, grandfather put himself into medical school, you know, self-educating from out of the ghetto. Like the people, you know, education is important in the family anyway. So reading's always been an important thing to me. And it's, it, I, I like to learn. I just, I enjoy it. So, um, I mean, I, I, I like to read a lot. So I don't know, what, what was the question again? <laughs> That wasn't a real, there wasn't a real question. So, so what, are, what are the most interesting things you've read? You've mentioned a lot of different, um, you know, historical topics today. What, what are the things that you're reading now that are helping inform your ideas about right now? Um, well, right, right now I've got a, a history of Canada queued up, which I, I've maybe I had that in queue and the election went the other way. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually that's not serious. I, I, uh, when I don't know a whole lot about a cer about certain kinds of topics that I feel like I should know more about, like you know history of like a neighboring country, <laughs> like sometimes I just get compelled about that. Um, like some years ago, like I was in a conversation with somebody and the War of 1812 came up, and I realized like I didn't really know anything about the War of 1812 because they avoided it in school because it's it was kind of embarrassing for the United States and it doesn't fit into the narrative um, mm -hmm. of like you know revolution you know we fought for freedom and then we fought for you know fought and defeated slavery and then we fought world war ii and you know saved the world it's like there's this whole narrative and now we're like you know the superpower and it's just kind of there's this like uncomfortable part in the middle there of like you know the war of 1812 you know reconstruction failing stuff like that it's not as comfortable to talk about um so i just got interested in it and uh read a book series on the war of 1812 that was amazing and like just dragged me into all the like the the characters and nonfiction has much better stories than fiction can ever come up with because things that actually happen are so wild and like interesting and random that you just couldn't write a plot twist that, you know, chaotic. <laughs> yeah, so I, I just get into that stuff. I just read a couple of books on Biden because he's gonna be, he's the new president. So I wanted to see what this guy's about. So I read his first autobiography from uh, 2007 when he, or no, before that. Which one, which one is it? Yeah, it was 2006 or something. It was before he got picked for vice president. So it was like, it wasn't aimed at this political moment. So it couldn't be as sculpted for it. So I knew it would be sort of an interesting take on the guy. He can't, it's not spun the same way. It's of course spun because everything's spun. It wouldn't be spun for this particular moment. So that was interesting. I'm Right now I'm just finishing up a book by Pete Buttigieg, who was a candidate for president mm -hmm. uh, this last time, who I really like. I, I think a fascinating dude. Uh, before he was running, I, I was playing in, in South Bend, Indiana regularly. I was working there a lot. And everybody there talked about that guy when he was mayor and how, how amazing he was a dude. Conservatives were like very impressed with him. The progressives really liked him too. Every, he was just a very popular dude and because he was bright and he was getting things done. So he's just like a cat that's interesting to me. So he wrote a book called Trust, which is deals with a lot of these issues about, you know, you know, the, the breakdown of our society because of, you know, fake news and stuff like that and how to rebuild it. And it's just, it's, an, it's a topic that I've been interested in for a while. So it's like, oh, you know, two and two. So I'm reading that. Honestly, book's not that great, but it's, you know, it's, it's fine. It's like a, it's like a, yeah. I mean, like this stack of books right here that I'm looking at, it's uh, one of uh, Albert Castell, the presidency of Andrew Johnson, who was the first president to get impeached on top of a book by C. Van Woodward on, um, the South post-Civil War, like when uh, the period 1977 to 1913, which is kind of when 
the Republicans and the Democrats switched their constituencies and their policy positions and like, and how that came to be. But it's, you know, it's really gritty detail about, you know, the economy and the individual characters who were involved in, you know, the, how the trains were running in Arkansas and stuff like that, you know, it gets way down in the mud. Um, and, you know, a book on FDR here and then biography of John Jay, the, uh, oh. one of the founders who is the, the first the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. This is the dorky stuff I'm into. There's uh, one underneath that um, on the uh, Haitian Revolution. I, so when you're talking about like missing your friends and being like unsocial and stuff like that, I'm used to that. <laughs> and that's a big part of the, the problem now is that, I mean, a lot of the big issues that are going on now have in societal problems have to do with the isolation everybody and trying to deal with this COVID thing that we just won't actually fully quarantine and take care of like we could and keep just dragging out um, that people need to feel like they belong to something and it gives them something to belong to if it's, you know, QAnon makes people feel like they're in on something and part of the community, then they they gravitate towards that. And you know, and again, I don't want to. I'm not dogging on Bernie Sanders at all. I I voted for the dude. If and but that gave people that sort of meme quality to the cat gives people feel like they're part of a community or something because they are, are with this. And um, you know, Donald Trump did the same thing. And people like you're you're the outsiders, and like they're told like, you know you're uh, deplorable or something like that. Well, then they, you know, people want to feel like they're part of a community and they, they join into this thing and they become part of it and it becomes a cult. And we've got it on all sides and all around us. Yeah, people want to belong. It's, it's a social need. Absolutely, absolutely. So this segues me to my last. Music has been a spectacle and part of this too. I mean, the entertainment industry, like we're work off of that. That's a big part of what we were, we're handling is, is that spectacle sort of thing. You know, it's, it's big, loud lights, you know, overwhelming sound and, and you can deliver ideas that way. You know, that's, that's one of the purposes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think what we see exactly like religion, we see on, um, you know, a dead tour or a fish tour. Yeah, Dead Tour was it was a cult of belonging more than anything. I mean, the, the, more than the music at all. It was it was absolutely it was a it was a subculture of belonging for people that didn't fit in any place. It was now I, I, I saw some of that when it was you know at the tail end of it. I, I went out on some of those runs and saw that stuff, and uh, it was like a place that people could go when they you know if their parents kicked them out or you know threw them out of the house for being gay or mm -hmm. they you know. They had an addiction problem and they were lost and they didn't found any help it was a place that they could go where there was a like a community that would take them in and take care of them and like and, uh, they're less likely to end up in jail or end up institutionalized or you know they might be homeless but they're homeless with a lot of people who are going to help them like eat and survive and it was like a way to stay it, it became a community it was more of a community than it was ever about anything else that was a really fascinating um, social phenomenon through a series of coincidences and happenstance of who it was and who ended up being that thing. It just was pretty interesting, you know, it's, you know, and it's a symptom also of the boomer generation being so large, mm -hmm. you know, that you could grow something that large. It's strange to watch it take new forms with new band members and, and um, yeah, but, but to, to watch that spectacle change. Well, at a certain point it became marketing and like, it's, it's yeah. too, profitable to let die you have to like keep going somehow so swap them out as you can and keep the thing keep that machine going so you can keep selling t-shirts 
at some level there's that and you know and of course the players want to keep playing and everybody wants to feel like they're still part of the thing and you know it it, it the the actual original and if there's a belonging in it of, of being away and everybody feels like they're part of the grateful dead family or something like that when they're you know you know isolated in all their different places they still feel a connection to that and that's great that's that's part of what music's for building community that's one of the one of the functions for it you know it's a lot of different things it can be used for but that's one thing it does sometimes no so 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 we've talked for the last few minutes about kind of community um mm -hmm. and so i think it only kind of segues interestingly to the last questions that i've got here so you know, you, you've, you live your life very differently. Um, and, and what's really interesting is that we've talked about um, the type of outsiders who are misinformed. But I think someone like you represents a conscious outsider to a certain extent. Um, and so, so what would you say you drive for in success? Like, what, how, how do you define success for yourself? I don't. I stopped thinking about it. I'm not interested in it. Like, when I don't... did you stop thinking about it? Huh? When did you stop thinking about it? Um, I don't think I ever was. Like, I think when I sat out to do it, it like when I first started, it was like those guys are making. You know, got the Guns and Roses consent. It was like those guys are making a living doing this. Like if those yahoos can do it, like why can't I? So like I'll just practice really hard and do it. And it became more about the practice and the focus and and the self work than it was about like it was never like I'm gonna get a big mansion and be on TV or something like that. It wasn't ever about that. It was about trying to stay alive and and do that. And there goes Chicago out there. Not end up in one of those. <laughs> one of those two, you know. Um, yeah. So I mean, I don't know. Like. I don't know what success means. And I think a lot of that was, is illusionary with, with music too. Like, I mean, I remember there was a girl who tried to date me a few years ago who like met me at a music festival and came up to me and wanted to talk to me and like figured out pretty, you know, after not too long that like she was chasing the big stage lights and the production and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. really that's what was like that thing it's an illusion it's not that's not what's really up it's that stuff doesn't matter it's all that's a show it's it's tv or something it's not real it's yeah. like it's entertainment um yeah yeah i mean i don't know what it what success is a bunch is a bunch of like is a bunch of it being put on a stage with a bunch of production the success like maybe it's a form of success I, I like doing that that's great i like doing the great production shows i also like playing background music in a restaurant somewhere where nobody's going to be looking at me or noticing that I just, you know, played a Rogers and Hart song, you know, like rather than the whatever else I was supposed to be doing. Like I enjoy that too. Like I like all of it. I just like, for me, it's just about like trying to stay alive and be decently happy. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like, you know, relationships and those things are great when they, when I find them, you know, it's, it's, that's, it's a pretty isolating line of work doing the solo show. Um, joining the band like made it more like social mm -hmm. to a degree but that you know that was pretty short that COVID killed that that's for sure yeah. so are, do you think of yourself as a social person um i mean humans are social by nature uh i'm yeah. less social than most um and i don't feel like it's really necessarily by choice it's just um it's just the the circumstances i'm in like i need to be practicing i need to focused on getting my work done. I don't drink, I don't do drugs. Um, a lot of like the social, 
if you step back far enough from the humans and can like observe behaviors for like their like really like cold like functional purposes um sometimes it, it can be a little bit uh daunting and um i don't know that can be isolating into itself you know well, people it's, are going out it's overwhelming a spectacle right huh? <laughs> it's as equally as overwhelming a spectacle as, as some of the other things that we've touched on i i understand what you're saying exactly <laughs> for sure this one goes to dark places so i don't know if we need to get that dark but you know <laughs> Humans have strange have motivations in most of the things that they're doing, um, even when it seems like it's just for fun. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's true. It is true. Everyone's doing something for something. Yeah, that's definitely true. So, so what are the things in your life that are most significant to you? That are most significant? Yeah. Um. I mean, that, it depends on what you mean by that and like what direction. I mean, my my sister's family and my aunts and my, like, oh, they're all significant to me, like very. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I have a, a close friend like lives nearby that like is important to me and they're like, their success to some degree and like getting, getting you know, staying healthy, that's important to me. Um, like the... Mm -hmm larger political issues are personal to me in a lot of ways like growing up in like a female household and like having being told things by like my great aunts about how they what life was like for them when they came up and like the way things that have improved since then that you don't want to go back to um like those kind of things are all important to me um and i'm just doing a lot of self-work on the music stuff uh just trying to put together physical skills burning time to you know come through the other end of this strange period um you know still you know still able to do some work and function and and i don't know it's it's, it's a strange period right now absolutely absolutely so so let's end with this last question here um then at a time when we quantitatively we can say we have a lot of things what can people learn from someone like you who's who's rejected a lot of those type of things that sort of market-based existence right like i i think you're you're you found a way to remove the noise all of the excess noise from life that that clutters up a lot of our lives and you found a way to focus on the things that keep you driving forward and i think i think that's interesting what what do you want people to learn from you um, maybe I can be a, a baleful warning. Yeah. Turn back, turn back. This path leads to ill. I mean, if that's, that's your feeling about what I'm doing. Okay. I mean, I think what I was doing is market-based too. I, I think more so than a lot of other musicians it was market-based. Like I stopped trying to chase the 20th century illusion stuff of mm -hmm. records and tours because that's not the market. That's not the real, that's not the current market. Um, so, I mean, you know, right now, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still focused on this live music philosophy thing that I had, you know, this expo expendable, disposable live music, you, it happens, you hit the note, you know, like I, like I hit the note, you know, and it rings for a while and then it stops, 
you know, and did it ever happen? Like, if we weren't recording, you wouldn't really necessarily be able to prove that it ever happened. It's like, it's disposable. And it was just this, like living life by the moment and, you know, just doing the thing, the now, focusing and doing, doing this very now thing. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, and, and at the right now, in the larger picture of like where the society is, like that live music thing that was working so well for the last decade, 20 years, whatever, um, is not the current functional market. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I haven't fully figured out how to adjust to that yet. I've got friends who are, who are trying different models and I'm sort of like looking to see what shakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know that it's like so withdrawn from the whole market and the society and everything that I don't know that I am. It's just I'm I'm just existing in a, in a very weird niche of it. I picked an industry that I picked a, a skill set that I wanted to build um, early on and, and went gangbusters for it because I didn't have any guidance and I didn't have like you know, very little parental guidance and nobody to like give me you know, tell me this is a bad idea. And uh just ran with it and and i'm just sort of following that out to its natural end the best i can because you know we're all going to die anyway like i'm going to do this thing and carry out this adventure rather than you know unless some other left turn happens that i can't predict yet i mean i'm too old to join the military (laughs) i I don't know what left turn i can make right now Hmm. maybe it's a right turn i don't know that's true that's a thing and and i yeah, no, TikTok's a huge thing. And that's a really interesting trend in music right now. I was thinking about this last night. So I have a friend who's like 22 or so and it, very much in that TikTok world. And noticing like that the music, when they're doing any writing, they don't develop their ideas. The music is like like sometimes like a songwriter might be like trying to come up with a song they're gonna come up with like a little bit of a verse a little bit of a chorus and they're gonna spend a lot of time developing it try to come up with the next verse how do i have this form repeat without being exactly the same i change the words on the second verse maybe the melody does this and there's a bridge the current medium because of tiktok and instagram the current medium is is it has to be under a minute so you don't have any time for a second verse there is no bridge because it doesn't go anywhere. It's not going to go anywhere because the, the medium, like, like for example, like when recording technology was invented, mm-hmm. symphony, or, symphony might be playing a song that's 45 minutes long. Well, this, this 45 is only gonna record three minutes. So give me three minutes of something and we can sell that. So the music became three minutes and then the LP got invented and the LP was the new form. So you, you got to come up with 40 minutes of music. So you create the idea of an album as though that was like, now people feel like an album is like this fixed thing, what it's supposed to be. It was just fitting the medium of the time. And, you know, then now the album's dead. The CDs came out and like, and then it was, everything was that much longer and they become longer and longer forms. And then everything's kind of breaking down right now where people are just wanting really short clips of information. And next, so like, Forms are getting, are getting shorter and shorter. Attention spans are getting sh- shorter. And even like in the macro sense, like it used to be like a, a chord progression might be 16 bars long of more information. Harmony is going this way and this way and this way. And then it resolves. And then James Brown came along and it turned into like one bar. And, and that's kind of, and 
now all then all music's kind of compressing that way. It's like becoming these very short, easily digestible chunks. Next, easy digestible chunk. Next, digestible chunk. Next. So that's that could be the new form. Is that everything's under a minute? Songs are short. There's no development. Um, and th that seems to be where things are going. There's crappy speakers on your phone. Everybody's listening to music in like really terrible meat form. Absolutely. Even the headphones that you're seeing are generally not very good. Like if they even use those. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. who wants to listen to like a 40 minute musical statement on a speaker that sounds like crap? You can't float away on a Pink Floyd album for 40 minutes if it sounds like it's coming out of a telephone. No, not your attention it's it's not it's not in, it, it overwhelming enough and so it, it's just like it's getting these really tiny chunks again so that seems to be where it's, where it seems to be where it's headed um and if live music is is dead then i think that's going to be the next spot is is like really quick little short things things that'll make the ramones sound boring too long <laughs> that, that would be that would be the day <laughs> Seriously, I mean, if, if you put a Ramon song on TikTok and it was the full 90 seconds. It would seem long. Yeah, they're going to flip past it. They're not going to last that long. Want the verse, the chorus, get the fuck out of my way. Yeah. Yeah, so and it's, it's it's interesting. And, and a lot of this old school form was was nonsense anyway. Like, why does there have to be? Why does there need a bridge? I like those forms. I like the development of it. I like what it what it does for me but they get that out of exact repetition well just let the tiktok play one more time if you liked it or or you see another video that's using the same 60 second clip later and it has a different you know girl singing into a hair dryer or you know a dude lighting his dog on fire or something horrible <laughs> you know it's it's going to be something else to set to the same song you know and, and, they, and they get the same clip of information that same like first chorus being used that way and, and instead of and so instead of developing by you know musically by having a second verse bridge they develop it by having a different kind of stimulus like superimposed on it you don't get a new set of words since imposed on it, you get a new set of images imposed yeah that is that is it is very true that 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 sort of idea of appropriation um right in, in different contexts there so let me ask this and I, I i don't know that you'll be able to answer this but so in you're a process oriented guy and i think time 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 invested in in what you are interested in has has helped you get to where you are today and you talk a lot about the practice the hours of practice that you put in so in a let's say in a one minute format do you think there's opportunities for different sorts of depth of sound? Um, and I'm, I'm thinking most obviously about layering, but I'm also wondering, you know, with the limits of these terrible speakers, right? Is, is this a weird renaissance where people can be strangely creative by different means? Oh, sure. But I mean, that's always been the case, but um, it's a popular thing now. And yeah, I mean, rock and roll came about because it was like the current technology of like, you know, an electric guitar got invented. You didn't need an 18 piece orchestra to like entertain people anymore. You didn't need to study for 30 years on how to play the trombone in tune. And, you know, it wasn't necessary. Pick this, this dumb thing up from the, right from the music store, learn three chords on it and you're in business. And, you know, all this time later, we've sort of like lost track of like that really always about that. And the current technology makes, you know, when, you know, when like the old people who came up with dubstep, like 
you know, who are all like, you know, in nursing homes at this point, like <laughs> that, <laughs> that was all like, you know, the new technologies, computer programs that could like generate this big sound that way. And now like, you know, everybody's got it on their phone. They've got some little, they can pull up their little sample or whatever in their TikTok format that like can create something they can be, make be something, some kind of creative with, creativity with it, you know? If it's not crushing berries in your mouth and spitting them out over your hand against the cave wall to like make a cave painting, mm -hmm. you know, it's some other like immediate thing that you have to be creative in some form. And it doesn't have to be necessarily as convoluted is what I do with, you know, decades of practicing 16 hours a day and going to universities and one after another and, you know, trying to deconstruct John Coltrane solos to, you know, like, it doesn't have to be that. I like yeah. those forms. I love Mozart and Beethoven. Like, I, that stuff's awesome. Like, I love listening to that stuff. It's, it's not the current form. Uh, it's not, you know, I don't think, I mean, the Eroica is, a, is an amazing symphony. I don't think it's going to be real popular with the kids right now, but it's awesome. I don't, I won't discount it. I'm glad it exists. I'm focused on, you know, is music also do dead people. And, you know, that's, a, you know, that's, that's is what it is. And I'll be a dead person eventually too, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm of my time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know, like, can I catch up talk? Like, yeah, maybe I, I, I'm screwing on that. I, just have, I haven't felt a, uh, real compelled by the medium yet like it's there's so much i don't know yeah i, I haven't i haven't i haven't felt super compelled by it i i, I think I, I i hit instagram and as far into that I, I think my development might have frozen somewhere around instagram uh, uh yeah right. so, you know i'm not i'm not i don't want to focus on trying to chase anything i'm trying to like be authentic you know i'm just want to be myself so i don't necessarily need to, like i don't i don't feel like i have to you know, mold it that much. I'm just gonna, I just do my thing, you know, and I was more focused on, you know, and we'll see maybe if live music doesn't come back, then, you know, maybe I'll have to look at some of these mediums in a different way and, and more actively pursue that, that, you know, trying to make a Twitch or something like that. Like maybe I'll, I will, um, mm -hmm. I guess I'm just not, you know, I haven't really felt that compelled by it yet because I feel like thing, things are so unstable right now. We can't predict whether or not that that's gonna be the only form like, in six months if it is you know catch me on tiktok i think that's a pretty good way to end man i'll be honest um i i know i've taken a bunch of your time and i i really do appreciate it so oh, uh, that. <laughs> we all got well, plenty of time right now yes, i should, should probably plug um that you know i am still playing with the chicago farmer in the field notes you know it's obviously pretty difficult to, to do a lot with them right now that project's still underway we're probably going to be making a uh, record as though we're the 20th century where we're going to get in the studio and do some 20th century things and make some 20th century type of uh, music and it might even have a physical medium for it or something like really old school yes. but um that is developing we're still working with those cats um you know as i as i play shows or you know when i can do that again and be outside i record videos live and i post them onto the internet so you can follow that stuff on instagram and facebook and what youtube and all those things you can look me up on there and um i'm pretty regularly posting music in either long form on youtube or tiny digestible 21st century chunks on instagram and uh it's, it's all out there i just yes. felt like i need to plug something 
I'm here babbling about the War of 1812. Yeah, I, I appreciate so much that you were willing to talk about all these other things. Um, and, and I mean, we, we know you because of the music. And I think that throughout this conversation, I've even learned that I've created a character of you that, that, that isn't, you know, is, is more of mythic proportion, right? So um, this has been awesome. Thank you. I had a really difficult time editing this podcast because every time I wanted to cut something, Jake pulled me away from myself and back into the conversation. If you're still listening, maybe you felt the same way. I'd strongly encourage you to please support Jake Willis. If live music is dead and venues won't be the same, I know one thing, Jake will be out there somewhere.